Um, so I'm going to talk really for, for five minutes, for, for five minutes, um, a little bit about the major arguments of the book, and then we'll go to uh, Rima's comments. I just want to say thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate uh, the time and the interest. These are very hectic times uh, in Jerusalem, of course. So I think that it's not, it's not taken for granted that you make the time to come. Um, and also, thank you so much for coming. It means uh, a great deal to me, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Um, so basically, I make three major arguments in the book. Um, the first is one which I think that basically the Oslo Peace Accords, many people thought that following those accords, um, Israel had less control over Palestinian civilian life. And I disagree with that. And I think that definitely there's no question that the peace accords have afforded Israel more control over Palestinian life in many ways. So that's one. Uh, the second argument is, and this may seem a little bit obvious, but it took me a long time to actually be able to get the findings for this. Israel's permit regime, which is, which is um, one of the most sophisticated population management systems on the planet, is not about security. And you might say, what do you mean? Well, of course it's not about security. This is about politics. And, and yes, I mean, you could claim that. But I mean in a much more uh, mundane level. When you look at the routines and practices and different organizations and how economic organizations work in tandem with the Shin Beit and with the civil administration, you realize that had this been about security, it would probably have been organized very, very differently. And we can discuss these different examples later on if this is of interest. But So my, the finding is not about politically, is this about security or is it a justification in order to control population and land? It's about should, if this was about security, what would it look like organizationally? And this is what I think I actually bring with this book. It's this, the vantage point from an administrative organizational sociology that is looking at these practices and routines, not only from the declarative and political point of view, but from what's actually happening on the ground and what, what are the intentions, the goals and the intentions that are actually um, being carried out. And the third argument is about the role of the Shin Beit. And this also might seem obvious in some ways, but realizing that the power of the, of the, of the Shabak is not only a power to decide who is considered friend or foe, or what is considered what is called the terrorist profile in scare quotes. It is literally to design a system in which they are the sole um, decision makers about what is considered suspicious and what is considered normal activity, what is considered okay and what is considered not okay. And it's a logic that literally you could see how the, the discretion of the Shabbat took over um, many of the organizations, both economic, so the employment offices, and the Ministry of Economy, Ministries of Trade, parts of the civil service, in which 
even though they have different kind of goals, different kind of routines, and everybody is supposed to carry out a different kind of job, it is the logic of the Shin Bet that is working through their own decisions. And in that sense, I think there's this exponential power of this organization that has, that's been towering over everyone else. Um, I think I'll stop there, and then we'll go to you. I don't need the microphone. Um, first of all, I'm so pleased to be here with Yael. I'm, I'm such a fan of her work. Um, and it's just really a privilege to be able to, to sort of give some of my comments um, on the book. What's really interesting is... Very close. <laughs> The, the difference between Yale's presentation of what she thinks is the most important in the book and then what I see as the most important in the book are almost <laughs> two different things. Um, I, first of all, I want to point out it's a really, really extremely important um, contribution um, Yale's made to a kind of larger body of contemporary work on Israel's occupation, on the, Isra on the contemporary form that the occupation has taken over 60 years, um, that sees it as a complex apparatus of power and control <coughs> operating in the service of a larger colonial project of dispossession um, of Palestinian from their land and patrimony. So books that come to mind in this genre is Nev Gordon's book, Israel's Occupation, um, where he tries to analyze the whole beast of the whole apparatus of the system of control, population, territory, um, movement. Uh, A.L. Wiseman's book, Hollow Land, um, that sort of looked at the control system through the prism of the spatial regime and spatial fragmentation and re-territorialization. <coughs> or Elias Rake's uh, work, Brutal Pursuit, which also looks at the control system through through the practices and systems of surveillance. Um, but I think Yale's book does a number of things very differently and in extremely important ways. Um, first of all, what she does is she focuses down really closely into the operations of one specific but really critical dimension um, of Israel's overall control system, which is the permit regime, um, with a focus on workers. And also, differently from those other works, she doesn't just sort of provide a big picture overview of, of a system of, that is sort of rather abstract, um, but she actually really closely follows its inner workings and logics um, and its, its ways of operating uh, at the everyday. I mean, she really goes into what you would call the belly of the beast. Um, and looks at that both as how it's experienced by its administrators, and super importantly, compared to a lot of works, she really centrally focuses on Palestinian experiences, readings and perspectives of it, those who are subject to it, and takes on their experiences as part of her larger analytical reading of, of how the system operates. Um, and I think the result is really amazing. Um, uh, the result of those new things that she's doing 
provides an outcome which is really a breakthrough um, from, and takes, gives us insights way beyond those, those other works. Um, for me, I think one of the, the really powerful things um, that it does is it gives us an incredibly different reading of the nature of Israeli power in the system of occupation. What we usually get and what we usually sort of assume is that the, the system of power through which the occupation controls Palestinians' lives is like really coherent and integrated and smooth and they're all working together on this great big massive plan. And here what you end up seeing is that the structure of power and governance over the lives of Palestinians is rife with chaos and contradiction, competition, overlaps, gaps, and holes between multiple agents of the state who are operating it. However, and this is the, the second great insight, that at least for me it was uh, of your book, that for Palestinians, this is actually a much more powerful system of control, the, the, the system of control through what Yael calls effective inefficiency, through this ambiguous, arbitrary, chaotic, impenetrable uh, series of mechanisms. Um, on the one hand, you've got a whole series of the, the permit regime's sort of procedures that are not even known to the administrators who are implementing them. They don't even know who the decision makers are most of the time, let alone Palestinians can make any sense of what the system actually is. Um, and on the other, what you have is this impenetrable, chaotic, bureaucratic maze. And maze, I think, is an understatement. Um, when I was reading the book, I, I don't play these uh, electronic games, but you know, I kept thinking, God, it's like those games where you're going through a maze and something's eating something, and then something comes out and hits it. You know, the, the whole way she sort of describes somebody trying to go and get a permit to, to get there their categorization changed from being a security threat is exactly like one of those, and I, I, I googled it, they're called maze games, uh, where you know from beginning to end you're just going to be completely lost and you can be beaten and, and, and eaten by a million things that jump out at you. Um, and so what you end up having is a system that has immense power through its arbitrariness. Um, and Palestinians are totally dependent then on a system that is completely elusive, impenetrable, arbitrary, that simultaneously results in controlling and disciplining their lives through fear and constant uncertainty. Um, and ultimately in this way, I think what another really wonderful um, contribution you've made is is around sort of the difference between procedural versus physical violence. Sort of the whole control systems of the occupation, at least in the West Bank, they don't have to depend so much on physical violence. What they can depend on is what Yael calls this wonderful concept, procedural violence, um, which is debilitating and coercive bureaucratic procedures that you're forced to engage with as Palestinian for your family's basic livelihood and survival. Um, and though I don't think we have anybody here from the West Bank with a permit, 
I'm sure there are members of the hotel staff who do. Um, I, I know that there's a few of us who are, who are East Jerusalemites and who can recognize effective inefficiency and procedural violence in its Jerusalem version, right, of how Israel con controls the population of um, East Jerusalem. Um, I want to give Yael as much time as possible to talk about her work, so I'll stop here and throw at her the first question. Maybe we'll sit down. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, because I'm assuming that nobody's read the book, the questions are going to be about letting Yael tell parts of the book. Um, so for the sake of the audience, uh, Mandy mentioned your background and how you came to this, but is there something you'd like to add um, about how you came to, uh, to do this body of research, become a sociologist of the occupation and work on the permit regime? Um, so there's a couple parts to that story, but my, um, my interest in bureaucracy actually um, began quite early on. I think I was 14. Um, and my parents went to debtor's prison for a few days. And they, they I mean, their, their debt wasn't, wasn't very high, but, but um, there was a day or two of trying to figure out how to get them out. And you know, I, mean, I was 14, I didn't have a lot of possibilities for that. And, and um, there were a few, there were a few moments of, you know, a massive loneliness um, around around um, that, just feeling that there was nobody out there and trying to figure out who you were supposed to go to. And um, I think that, so. That's the the first interest that comes. It came from from the fact that my family was a victim of bureaucracy based on economic reasons. But um, that that's the first. Um, moment there. And then um, when I went to be a lawyer, I really believed that, you know, being a lawyer gave you power, you know, to protect pe people against the state. Like, I was totally, I was, re I really believed that. And, and I, I even believed it for a while. So even becoming a lawyer, I worked with, a, 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 I was, a, I interned at a Victor Feldman's uh, office. And then I did that crazy thing of opening an office of my own. Um, and it was during this time that I I, I was representing in military courts, and I realized that the families of the people I was representing couldn't come to the court because they didn't have a permit, and they had to come from a different side. And there were two sides. There was the Jewish side of the court. There was the Palestinian side of the court, literally the spatial organization of it. And I, I had no idea what this was about. And then I stumbled across a tiny pamphlet of Physicians for Human Rights. This is like 2003 or 2004. It has like, I don't know, 16 pages. And it was bureaucracy serving the occupation. I'm looking at it, and I'm realizing that there's this, there's this big system and nobody knows about it. And so I went to sociologist Yudha Shinhab, who I knew from, from political work, and I said to him, you have to write about this. Somebody that understands about organizations has to write about this. Um, and two weeks later, he called me and he said, I think you should come and do a master's in sociology and you write about it. It was completely off the map. I, I had no... Um, it wasn't really part of my thinking at that time, but that's what—that's how it happened. And I think it also like saved me in many ways. So like as I was lawyering, 
doing this research enabled me to kind of deal with what I saw, this kind of horrible, broken, you know, the way that the, 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 the system um, was breaking up people's lives. But because I was interested in how it was doing it, it was easier to deal with. So in a way, it was kind of this mediating factor. Suddenly there was something more. It wasn't just like sitting there and realizing that, that you were losing even when you were winning, but trying to understand how the system worked. And then um, I really, what happened after that, which is why I also went to, to continue um, to, to get a PhD in sociology, was that I realized that the emergency laws that governed um, the West Bank were the British, British colonial defense regulations, emergency defense regulations. And then that was like, oh my gosh, this is not just here. This, you know, it's, it's a much larger structure. This is an imperial structure. This is a colonial bureaucracy. It looks totally different. There's this whole other world. And we were looking at it wrong because we were trying to see it through these eyes of, you know, classical, modern, liberal state bureaucracy. And it just doesn't work. You can't do it. You're not going to see anything. You just see this broken, ridiculous system. And that was what, what really fascinated me into that, you know, through Hannah Arendt and her work on the Lord Cromer and reading more about, about um, Egypt and India. And then that was really kind of this opening, this really opening up and also understanding where I live, which was uh, uh, the dawning. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I just want to say one more thing about that. So, the ability to write this book was because I'm Jewish, Israeli, blonde woman. It's really important to get that. No, the, the, the access. It wasn't just about being Jewish and Israeli. It's about being female. It's about being blonde. And it's about being perceived as completely loyal and harmless to a system. It was just assumed. Today would be a different matter, probably, because um, there's more of a realization that you can't be Jewish with a passport and Israeli and blonde and not be loyal. But this is, this is, um, this is 10, 12 years ago, and it was impossible. It was impossible to, to fathom that you could you know, not be a loyal citizen. And so that... So the access part, and that, that is definitely part of the racial hierarchy. So what enabled me to do this research is the racial hierarchy and how, how it works. So yeah, that, that's just an important point. Okay. Um, so in the introduction, you sort of show us the historical evolution of, of the, the permit regime. It's a really important point so that we all remember this was not always there. This is actually, you know, 20 years. How many years are we talking now? So if we start, maybe 91. No, 91. Yeah, 91. So a bit more than uh, who can count. 30. <laughs> 30. Okay. But there was a complete other world of Palestinian mobility and movement without permits um, that many of us were very lucky to have, you know, lived and experienced. Um, but I, I'd like to ask you to read from the prologue, um, the story of Asa, uh, and she 
she and I already decided on this beforehand, but I'm pretending I'm asking it now. <laughs> I'm going to look surprised. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not prepared. <laughs> no, no, I am. And just, just to preface it, because I think the really marvelous thing in the prologue through this one story is that Yael captures the whole experience of trying to get um, from A, A to, to Z, uh, of a Palestinian worker, Asa, from a village outside Hebron, who's been suddenly declared a security threat after working in Israel with a permit for three years. Um, thanks. So I'm, I'm actually not starting from the beginning. I'm, I'm starting from a point where uh, uh, Isa, he was, he was, uh, he was uh, denied entry by the police and then he had uh, open, open cases, and we managed to close those open cases after months of work. And then this is as, as it's, um, we're finishing one stage, and something else happens on the way. Finally, in September 2005, the head of the investigation unit called to report that the case had been sent back to him and was finally closed. He apologized for the delay. I immediately called the Muria police station and requested an official closure form. I then forwarded it to attorney Hassan, who took it to the DCO, when he was told um, the office was operating on a reduced capacity during the Jewish holiday season, and the police representative was unavailable. Isa had little choice but to wait for the holiday season to pass. Then in October, he applied for a new magnetic card at the DCO. The soldier at the booth informed him that while the police no longer banned him, he was now under a ban issued by the Shabak, commonly known as the General Security Service. Um, or Shinbet, and he should contact its, its representative at the DCO. Exasperated and terrified, Isa called me to swear by everything he held dear, that he had never lifted a finger against the security of the Israeli state. He vowed by his children that, and I quote, his heart was, was pure and clean as clean can be. He asked me if I thought a family feud in his village could have led to the security ban. He wondered who could have done that to him, since he himself had never committed anything worse than a traffic violation. I was already well accustomed to terrified calls like this, prompted by the words, banned for security reasons. And I tried to calm him down, telling him that thousands of people were banned for security reasons, including elderly people, the seriously ill, and so on, maybe up to more than 200,000 of the West Bank residents um, altogether. There was no need to him for swear, to swear his innocence to me. Easter returned to the DCO, presenting the Shin Bet representative there with an istilham, plea for clemency form, um, in, which, in which he generally apologized for whatever he did, even though he never knew why he was put under a security ban. It's basically um, a, a form where you say, I'm sorry for having done the things that I did, even because you, you can't really be specific because you don't know what you did, so you just say that I'm sorry that whatever. Um, uh, he asked the Shinbet to remove the ban and reinstate his work permit. That day, at the entrance to the DCO, he ran into volunteers of the human rights group Machsom Watch, who helped write the clemency plea. After submitting the plea, Issa returned every morning to the back entrance of the DCO to the metal gate leading to the Shinbet building. Every day, he presented his identity card to the guard at the gate, a reserve soldier, and waited to be called to talk to the Shinbet representative to convince him that the security ban was a mistake. He waited for three days, from 9 in the morning until 5 in the afternoon. And each day, the soldier returned his card at the end of the day and advised him to try again tomorrow. After his attempts to, sh to speak to the Shin Bet had failed, in November 2005, Issa hired a second Palestinian lawyer who contacted the Office of the Legal Advisor for Judea and Samaria, a branch of the civil administration in the settlement of Beth El, asking them to remove his client's security ban. 
Although the Shin Bet is not officially part of the Civil Administration Population Registry Department, the request of the legal advisor to review Issa's status was an appeal of sorts against the decision of the Shin Bet. In effect, this was the last legal recourse available short of appealing to the Israeli Supreme Court as High Court of Justice. I mean, I think that section just does a beautiful job of sort of showing all of these overlapping um, parts of the bureaucracy and and, uh, um, and I listed them here. Okay, so these are the parts of the bureaucracy that are involved in the permit regime. You've got it's headed by the civil administration. It's realized by liaison officers, DCOs, created in Oslo. It has representatives of the Shabak, the Israeli police, investig investigative units within the border police, the Ministry of Interior, the Ministry of Labor, COGAT, the coordinator of activities in the territories, and military courts. I mean, you've got all of those, right? And he's actually just trying to, he, with your help and the help of other lawyers, trying to navigate through uh, all of these uh, different parts of bureaucracy. Um, and I wanted to ask about that, because that whole part of how the whole system is all of these overlaps and nobody knows who's in charge and everybody shifts it over. Um, I want to raise the issue of intentionality, right? Uh, was this a thought out ploy or was this an evolution or what? Um, so I really wanted to find the plan for the emergency, for the, for the permit regime. I really wanted to. And I went through every single, so Kogat, they, they make, they're, they're wonderful chart makers. They make these fantastic charts, especially during Oslo. So Oslo was this incredible time in which people really knew how to make charts in PowerPoint. Organizational <laughs> charts. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. It's not funny, but it's funny. And like, I, I actually got my hands on a lot of the organizational charts. This is how the civil committee is going to work. This is how the joint committee is going to work. This is the routines that they're going to, anybody who has kind of met some of these um, organizations knows about these charts. The thing is that the charts never really happened. Um, and this is not strange. This is not strange that they didn't really, really happen. I call this the routinization of emergency. The permit regime um, is created through a response to something that happens on the ground, and then there's a response of the system, and then that response becomes part of the administration. So anything, so, and that's why you have 101 types of permits, and that's why you have 16 types of categories in the seam zone. So it might seem like somebody said, how do we really get people to tear their hair out and, you know, you know, plead for an early death? How, do, how, how, how would you do that? And you'd say, yes, create categories for the permit regime of the seam zone. This, the seam zone is this area where um, there, Palestinian lands behind the wall, and they uh, and so the agricultural part of the seam zone means that people needed permits in order to reach their land so they could cultivate it. Um, and that's I think there's like four four or five categories of that. Um, so I I didn't find a plan. There is the general plan is it's very simple, and this is you know it's like wanting the 
the, you know, the dowry without the bride. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's the truth. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the plan. The plan is, you know, wanting to keep the territory without, without the population, without the population mother. That, that's that's the, the settler colonial logic of it. But there's this other part, because it's not only settler colonial logic, it's also the carceral colonial logic. So you have two things. So that's why I have a problem when, when, we're, when we just say, oh, this is settler colonial and that explains everything, because it doesn't. Because you have a different kind of logic, which is the basic colonial logic, which is the carceral one, which wants to monitor population uh, as much as possible. And that's also part of the clashes between the different organizations. So on the one hand, you have, you need to have, this is all based, the control is based on economic dependency. So in 2004, the government said, by 2008, we're not gonna have any permits, we're not gonna have any Palestinian workers. Why didn't that happen? Because then you lose this incredible edge on the control of a population. Why would you ever do that? And, and at the same time, so there's a whole other aspect, which it's mostly in the, sh the, sh the, the, the third chapter, which is like the political economy aspect of this, which is very important too, um, in which you have uh, whole sectors of Israeli economy that rely on Palestinian labor, and then they're also going crazy with this bureaucracy <coughs> in which they have to also get permits through quotas, and the quotas are a negotiation process between the defense ministry, between the trade ministry, between the employment office. I mean, this is for people that are actually very interested. You should read it because it, it's complex. Um, I think that the, the planning part, so you have this overall logic to it. You have an overall goal. And I think that also the, the goal of the Shabak was not that clear. I think what happens is um, that the, when does the permit regime become the recruitment ground the, for, in, for, for Israeli intelligence? This ha it happens in 2000. You know, the, the, the double-headed bureaucracy of Oslo implodes entirely. People shoot each other in the DCOs. And then everybody's scared of everybody. We don't know who is friend. We don't know who is foe. Like, real Carl Schmidt live. Okay? Carl Schmidt, um, uh, I'm a philosopher. Yeah, uh, constitutional, um, German constitutional scholar, um, notorious for his, um, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> um, anyhow, so so um, so there's no way to distinguish between friend and foe, and then the Shin Bet comes in. We will tell you who are friend and foe. This is where the power really comes in about about who you can work with and who and who you can't. And then the entire system moves from managing Palestinian life to managing Israeli security through the categorization of its population. And that's where there's all this power. And then suddenly, and, and we have to realize, and this is, I think Salim Tamari called this um, eyeless in Judea. There's a period of time where the Shabak loses their, they lose their sight um, because of the first Oslo. intifada. First intifada and then, and then Oslo, there's a loss of intelligence because um, they couldn't have as many agents on the ground. And I think that what happens is, is that suddenly there's this administrative system and it can be used instead of having your information coming from um, agents who know a lot of information and in-depth and very reliable information to a blanket of informants 
tens and thousands of informants that are, that are constructing this gigantic database about Palestinian life that is incredibly effective if what you're trying to do is convey your control. So one of the things that I like, uh, uh, um, uh, one, uh, there's a, a story that to me was the most effective. When um, I had a client who went and he, he's talking to one of the Shabak captains um, and he says to him, who gave you the needlepoint of Elaksa that is in your living room? And at that moment, the world crashes, right? I mean, just like, how do you know what do I have inside my house? Now, it's, it's really simple because you had his neighbor and the question is asked, can you tell me what um, so-and-so has on his walls? And that's enough and then that goes into, and when it gets used and it gets used well, it is incredibly potent and it creates this sense of omnipotence and of powerlessness and desperateness that, that, and that do it. And atomization is the word you use. Exactly. So that's, that's, that's where Arendt comes in very, very strongly. And I think that definitely that does the job. And I do think that it wasn't intended. I don't think anybody in the Shabak said, oh, we're going to create this, this administrative permit regime and we're going to structure it and this is how we're going to have our intelligence. But suddenly there's this moment where there's a desperate list to know who is friend, who is foe, and how, and the classification becomes everything, becomes everything in the system. And people, they, they really mean it. Like, you talk to, to the people who were in the civil administration, they really didn't know what to do. And into that went both the Shabak and many of the people that were settlers that were inside the civil administration and gained power because they can say now, we told you so, let us use the bureaucracy as a weapon against the civilian population. And that's what happened. Uh, yeah, I mean, a huge part of it, I think, which is so fascinating, but don't have, is the penetration of the, of the settler movement within all, all parts of, of the whole bureaucracy of the occupation. Um, but because we want to open it up for questions soon. Security. Um, so the ideology, which is a word you don't use, of the whole system is the security threat, right? You call it security theology. Um, and the whole system exists, uh, you make this argument, it's a brilliant argument, exists because the default position is that every Palestinian is a security threat until proven innocent. And you're proven innocent by getting a permit. But then how you're proven innocent or not innocent, who decides it, on what basis, is not known. It's with the Shimbet, but the Shimbet won't share the categories, um, it's all secret information, etc. Um, and then also how you show how everybody ends up deferring to the Shimbet. Okay, the Shimbet says, we'll carry the burden of, you know, um, sort of uh, dealing with security threats. We'll make the decisions about you know, what could be dangerous or not. Um, but then at the same time throughout the book, linked to what you said at the very beginning, um, you, you show how the issue of security is constantly overlooked, ignored, cast aside, you know, in a whole range of procedures and even permanent types, you know, especially for the settlements, it's just really amazing. You know, you maybe, maybe we should say something about that. Yeah. So, so there was this, there's this other structure. So this is all about um, permits to enter Israel for work. But 
permits for the settlements were given in a different, an entirely different system, where people did not have to go through police and shabak. They, what they would do is they would get the permit directly from Kabata uh, Sukha, how do you say? So the, the, the officer in charge of, uh, of uh, employment in the civil administration. And then the head of security of the settlement would decide who comes in and who doesn't. So this is like a privatization of the system into the settlements. But what was amazing was that, like for instance, when we go to the Supreme Court and before, um, and so there was this you know, negotiation, many times if the, um, if the Advocate General's office decided to, to um, say, okay, we'll grant a permit, they would say, okay, we'll grant a permit despite being a security threat, but for the settlements. Now, of course, we would settle for this because you don't want to continue to go against them in a, and get a Supreme Court decision in which somebody's a, declared a, a security threat, and since the person wants to work, so obviously it's the better way. So you have these permits that say, denied entry for security, so manobitoni, so denied entry for security threats, permit to go into the settlements. And then I kept, I kept asking it, but wait a minute, they're not Jews? They're security No, threats. in the settlements, aren't there Jews? I mean, if, if the, the whole problem is that you pose a security threat to Israeli Jews, then you don't pose a security threat to Israeli Jews in the settlements? How does that make sense? But every time I asked, nobody really had an answer for that. It's like, it's different. What's different? It's the territories. I don't know. You know, it's... And, there, and, and there's a lot more to that structure. Yeah. And then along with that, for instance, when, you, when cases were taken to get somebody's security threat uh, categorization undone, when they were taken all the way to the su Supreme Court, I think it was 70% of them were... were, ne 50, were 50. 50% were undone uh, in negotiation yes. with the Shimbet before reaching the court, yeah. right? Uh, so uh, my question is this, because for me, one thing that came to mind was sort of, you know, an earlier phase of checkpoints. Checkpoints there, blocking the road, and then everybody's walking around it, and sometimes you even get soldiers saying, oh yeah, you, can pass, you can't pass here, but you can pass right there. So if it's such a profound doctrine that everyone's internalized and believes, how, how can you account <coughs> for these myriad ways and which, no, it, it doesn't count. It suddenly it doesn't, you know, it's not serious. In, in, the, in the checkpoint part of this, what you end up with is, you know, reading, let's say, um, breaking the silence uh, things by soldiers, you know, you end up with sort of a lot of cynicism. The soldiers, you know, are saying they can't really believe anymore in their mission. They see that the whole thing's nonsense. But in the military, you have a lot of turnover. So it can, it, can, it can absorb people losing belief, let's say, right, in, the, uh, in what they're doing. But what about there? Where are the cynics? Where are the disbelievers within the system? So to me, the most amazing thing is the forgeries, forgeries of, uh, of permits. So there was one case of this guy, Sami Coyne, who was in charge of a, a small agricultural council. And he, together with two women that he knew, that one was, in, one was in the payment section and the other one was in the IT section of the civil administration, they forged like, I think it's like 14, 
1,470 permits over a period of, of, of three or four years, and they, he made four and a half million shekels off of selling of the permits because what he would do is he would get the permit and then um, call to cancel them once people had passed the check. It, it was it, pretty, pretty smart, like a mafia, like a permit mafia. And so the two women from within the system who he bribed, one with chocolate and the other with flowers. <laughs> I kid you not, this is, this is all, I mean, this is like this very, very long decision from the district court in Be'er Sheva. Um, if anybody's interested, I'm happy to give you the reference. Um, and so they get like two months each of Avodot Shirut, I don't know how to say, community service. And he gets four and a half years, but part of it is, Part of it, he was arrested, and then the other part is mediated by something, and he winds up like spending less than two years in jail. I mean, okay, so you had at least if because he used the permits again and again, so you had at least fourteen hundred Palestinians walking around with fake permits that had not gone through the police on the Shabak, and then this guy gets less than two years in jail. May I remind you that certain poets. Um, will be spending more time in jail. Um, hopefully not. But um, uh, so, and then I asked, I asked um, um, the former military advocate general, Danny Froni, and I, I came to him with this and I said to him, tell me, how is it possible that you have all these crazy forgeries all the time and that it's happening and that they're not criminalized and this is not a problem? He says to me, you know, the military is like a society. Some people, you know, they, they do things that are problematic. And, you know, yes, and you have to take care of it, but it's not always such a big deal. <laughs> and I had to really stress, but wait a minute, isn't this, like, about security? Aren't you trying to check who's entering? He's like, yeah, but you know, I mean, if, for instance, if it's a 60-year-old that's entering or if it's a young child. I mean, we know that that's not a problem. There's only certain people that are problematic. And this is the military advocate general. And it was almost as if I was taking the security threat so much seriously than he was. And this is something that you find, and you find again and again and again, and you're just like, wait a minute. It, including, till this very day, people who know exactly where to come around the walls, or where you can enter, or what you can do. I mean, this is part of the informal economy, and it is done also in order to maintain it. And so, I mean, that, those parts are the most flabbergasting in that sense. And so, and, and people do, they do know this. They do know this. People in the civil administration know about this. They understand that something is deeply wrong with it. But there's not a lot that they can do also because they don't have a way to explain it to themselves besides chaos. No, I mean, in the sense, let's put that back. So they have, there's this framework in which all Palestinians are dangerous. Therefore, if somebody says that Palestinians are dangerous, they must be right. There's this chaotic system that doesn't work, but the problem can't be that Palestinians are not dangerous. Okay? So in, in, that's, that's what the clerks think, if they're not settlers. If, they're not, if they are settlers, then there's a whole other then bureaucracy is a weapon, and that's stated, and that's used, and then they're also much more aware of what's going on, and they're, they're upset that it's not working better. 
I think that takes further exploration in your next book. Uh, you know, the lack of the contradiction and and belief and cynicism, um, and how how they might work all together. And that brings me to the next thing, which is the political economy question. Um, one area that comes up a lot in the book um, is sort of the political economy of coercion, right, of the whole system and the whole range of economic interests um, that are at play here. You know, and you know, uh, there was one uh, you mentioned, um, uh, somebody calculated at one point that a uh, Palestinian worker every year might pay about 200,000 shekels for permits. I think it's 100,000, but... But still, yeah. given, yeah. Um, you know, so you've got sort of all of these players who are benefiting, right? Uh, the regime that's making money from getting the permits, the employers uh, who are getting to hyper-exploit Palestinian workers, especially if they're settler employers, uh, the also workers that are not going to challenge um, their employers because they won't get a permit, which you, f you show very clear. Um, then you've got this whole other thing that springs up, the middleman, right? Um, the middleman for the Israeli employers and the middleman for the Palestinian workers, and you throw in the lawyers there, which I th thought was very large of you. Um, so maybe there is major economic interest and political interest too in terms of political leaders and the, the worker quotas. And, uh, Right on the national level, but then also in terms of uh, their own personal constituents. I mean, there's major economic interests. It's I would think are are a player here. Um, so yeah, like I told you before, you're on to me. Um, and so a lot of. Um, so the, the political economy aspect, it, it is a major player and part, of, and part of my difficulty to kind of write about the political economy and, and the security logic at the same time was that sometimes they really contradict and eclipse each other. And yes, I mean, and the other part of it is that if I would have just looked at the political economy type of system, I would also lose that edge because it does, it can look at times at so, like so many other things that are considered okay, austerity measures, structure and restructuring, so, and inequalities that are entirely accepted in what you call modern liberal democracies. And so that was a problem because I had to make that differentiation between what happens to workers in whatever, even, you know, many uh, European economies, not to, not to even get into the U.S., but complete, you know, this is, it, you, it, this could be completely about that type of story, just without the, you know, that, the political national settlement edge. But then you, you lose that sight of it, and, and it was most important for me to tell about the colonial bureaucracy from, and the racial hierarchy from the security aspect because I think it's so important and because I think it's such a, an important part of the history here that also connects, you know, 
1948 and the, and the military government, and that, that's, that's the story that I want to tell. Because to me, that kind, that's important to understand that there isn't this cleavage that we think, that so many of us think that there is between 1948 and 67 in terms of the, the, the Israeli logic of control and how security works. Having said that, um, things that did not go into the book were if the head of Coca-Cola in the occupied territories asked for 300 workers, he would get those workers like this. Another side of it, which I did not go into for obvious reasons, is the role of the Palestinian Authority in the bureaucracy of the occupation. And there's no reason for me to, I, well, I mean, I can go into it if someone is interested particularly, but not only the role of specific bureaucrats, in money-making operations having to do with the management of population and the prevention of movement, but also how access to permits and access to lists, because you can give lists. And in a way, and here's, here's a hopeful moment, so during, uh, during um, the, the Jerusalem, uh, the, last, the last wave of uh, of uh, what? Last summer. Last the, summer. The, the, what, the what is called in Hebrew the knife intifada. Um, oh, that one. Yeah. Um, so there was an attempt to create a permit regime in East Jerusalem. There was an attempt. There was, there was walls, there were checkpoints, and there were lists. So people were told, give us lists of, your, of, of people that work in um, hospitals, give us lists of people that work in different places, give us lists of your VIPs. And there was a refusal to do it. And to me, you know, I was just like, please, please, don't, don't. No, because the first list that goes through, that's the end of it. You know, you need, you need, you know, you need 20 VIPs or five BMCs or whatever it is that you're talking about or it, that, that'll go through um, the checkpoint through, through privilege, through networking with the civil administration of the Shabbat, and it's over. And that didn't happen in East Jerusalem. And that means, A, either that people have learned something, or that it wasn't as organized as we would expect, which is also, uh, so in that sense, that's the story about, uh, about uh, political economy. And yes, I think that you know, this, it's, it's the extreme form of neoliberal exploitation of work. So it's, it's that extreme form. And, and it's where you know, neoliberalism and colonialism meet each other at this place, and you're just like, I can't believe this is like this. But it, but it really, you can, you can see the historical and the future in like the same, you know, essential organization. So, yeah. Okay. Last question. Um, the self-defeating nature of trying to challenge the system legally, um, and how it, you. I think it ultimately just enables, uh, you can talk about that. You can't, you can't hear me. <clears throat> She's got a very loud voice. Can't compete. They know. So the self-defeating nature of trying to challenge the permit system through legal and human rights mechanisms is something that comes up over and over in the book um, and that you're very strong about. And can talk to the audience a bit about that, and that, but also you don't raise the dilemma of what happens when lawyers and human rights organizations say, okay, we're, we're going to stop enabling the system. 
Um, so I was going to read my one. Um, so that's exactly what I, got. I mean. We had a we had a book launch um, last month, and that's exactly what Amira has said. She said, "You can't decide to stop. You can't decide to stop. You you, you know only your clients can tell you. We are willing to stop. We are willing to give up on uh, the possibility." Um, yeah, in a sense, you know, being able not to comply and not to participate is a privilege. And I think that that's something that is, what I realized was that, um, maybe I will read, because I think I, it took me a long time to figure out what I was saying, but I think I will read. I, could I just, because yeah. I know what you're going to read. Okay. But, um, Yael sort of shows through a, a couple of different cases how legal interventions to try and reform the system actually sort of created a, a, a kind of um, negative blowback that where it would actually just help codify right. the system even more right. and close loopholes. That, that So you're, you're trying to challenge it to change, but the way it changes in relation to legal things is by becoming tighter and stiffer um, rather than, you know, uh, more coherent and open and whatever. Yeah, yeah so exactly that. So, so taking any part, so as you're trying to, um, so I'll just give an example. So in order to get a case through, you need to A, say this person hasn't done anything. That includes like participate, like organizing the, the soccer team of Abidie. You can't do anything. Anything that you do that is an association, you know, social, cultural, or has any political relevance to it is immediately problematic. And so you have to say, this person has done nothing. People like to say, I go from home to work. I don't do anything else. And then you promote that this is, you know, you know, a good Palestinian is a Palestinian that goes from work to home. Okay, so that's one aspect of it. The second aspect is that you have to focus on violations. Let's focus on violations. There is no violation in the permanent regime. Israel sees it as a, regi as a, as a regime of privileges. It's not even about, you can't even talk about violations. It's all about privilege. Like, we are giving you the privilege of working here. There, and even when, when there are interventions in the courts, they're like, uh... We think it's unfair. We think the procedure is not unfair. No, the procedure is not unfair. But you, the fact that you can't voice any of the context, you can't voice any of the processes, and you can't voice the sheer like, you know, the, the evilness that goes into people's lives. I mean, definitely banality of evil. All the judges know it. Everybody knows it, and they participate in this kind of charade, which I mean, if if if, if anybody's been following like the the, the last um, petition about about um about uh, you know, shooting protesters in Gaza. It's a total charade. Everyone knows that there's nothing, there's nothing legal about that that's not international law, it doesn't exist. And yet, and yet participate, and, you, and, and the participation is because, okay, this is one of the only means. And I think that there is a different way to do this, and I think it's about doing political work. And I think it's about, and I'm amazed, you know, reading your work, I, w I kept being amazed at how much political involvement there is. How amazing is that when, you know, that's exactly what's being done, trying to suck the life out of any political activity, out of any, you know, decapitation through sending people to jail. Um, yeah, it, even, even this morning, Darin Tatou 
that's it. Any voicing of political dissent, nothing. All of it is dangerous. The political threat is the security threat. And so, and in that structure, working within that structure to say, yeah, get these through because they're okay and they haven't talked to anybody and this and that. I mean, literally. I mean, you know what, what it means to, to when, when you, have a, you have an 18 or 19 year old and they, they're, they're really good at physics. <laughs> no, you can't get through it. And, and I think realizing that and realizing that the only alternative is doing political work, and I'm going to say more than that, the only alternative is also not giving up on the Israeli public for me and not saying this is just, you know, okay, this, nothing can change. No, yes, there's no alternative. It's never been proposed. It's always more of the same. It's always part of the system. And I think that, that having to let go of, of using privilege in order to, to make those, those holes, it has to happen. It's just that's, that's what has to happen. Yeah. Wonderful. So I'd really like to thank Yael for...